Hello, everyone, and welcome to Grant Thornton's Leaders' Lounge. We're delighted to bring you this series of conversations where we'll chat with some of the most successful and recognised leaders in Irish business today about their journeys to leadership, their lessons learned, and their plans and hopes for the future. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Joe Wiley. Joe is the founder and CEO of Amrit Pharma PLC, a global rare and orphan disease pharmaceutical group. Joe has over 20 years experience in the pharmaceutical, medical and venture capital sectors. He trained in general medicine in Trinity College Dublin, specialising in urology. He has an MBA from INSEAD and is a member of the Royal College of Physicians in Ireland. Before founding Amrit, he was a medical director with Acellus Pharma and had a number of venture capital investment roles. Joe, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm very good, Stephen. Uh, good to see you. Good, good, good. I know we're in really strange times, Joe, and we're meant to have this conversation in, in our office, So, but everything is, is remote, so we'll make do with a, a virtual uh, version. Uh, yeah, it's fine, Stephen. In fact, that gives me the opportunity to show off my logo in the background for a bit of free advertisement. So a that's free plug there. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, what I would like, we're all sick of depressing news about lockdowns and viruses and all that kind of stuff. So let's let's have a virtual swear jar that if anyone talks about any C words, and I'm talking about coronavirus and COVID there rather than anything else, uh, we'll stick a virtual euro into the jar and we'll settle up later on. So we'll we'll see if we can avoid that that topic for uh, for the rest of this conversation. Is that okay with you? Sounds good to me. Uh, and I do. I want to come back to Amrit and the incredible achievements you and the team have had to date there, not least. The recent Nasdaq listing and getting to ring the closing bell, which, which was a huge, huge achievement. So we'll come back to that. Uh, but let's go back a little bit first. Tell me about your early days, the young Joe, where you were brought up, where you went to school, all that stuff. Sure. Um, so I'm from the country. Um, I, I um, grew up in County Mead um, in a place called Stumbullen. Um, and um, I, when I grew up, it was very much the countryside. Um, the, the, I remember my 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 uh, cousins coming from the city, and and they would be scared at nighttime because there was no lights. Um, now that area has become commuterville to Dublin with the uh, with the advent of motorways. Um, but in in my day, if you got stuck behind a tractor going into into town, you, that was pretty much you done for for the rest of your journey. Um, so I grew up there. Um, went to school in in a no, uh, local national school. Um, and then uh, went to um, secondary school in, in to Gormanston College. Um, yeah. And my my um, uh, father at the time wanted me to go to the local uh, Christian Brothers School, um, and um, my mother wanted me to go to Gormanston. Gormanston was a fee-paying school. Um, we didn't have a lot of money uh, uh, growing up, and quite frankly, they, you know, it was a struggle to send me to to, uh, to a fee-paying school. Um, the reason I went is because. I, at the time, was getting some grinds. This is a very old Ireland um, from uh, a nun called Sister Joseph, who, who uh, lived in a local enclosed order, a convent that was beside us. And we used to go in as, as 11 and 12-year-olds in, in to see her. And she would be there behind, behind bars, literally behind bars, teaching us uh, our, 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 our tutorials. So it was she who convinced my religious father to send me to Gormanston. So... I went to Gormanston College, which was a wonderful experience. It was a, a, a brilliant school full of um, a good, a good academics, but also very sport orientated. Um, yeah. And that really suited me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, how, how did you end up in medicine? Was that a family tradition? 
Well, my father is a scientist. Um, he he was he was um, worked for Olus, which was called back in the days now Enterprise Ireland. Um, <clears throat> so he did science in 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 college. Um, I um, was always attracted to to the science side of things, um, and um, you know, in many ways, um, I, I didn't really know what my choices were. As as a lot of people, I think maybe of my of my era and our, our area. You know, there was you kind of thought of of, of a limited number of choices, right? Um, I like science, and um, I, I like the idea of of uh, helping people, and therefore um, medicine was was a good choice for me. So went to Trinity and um, and did medicine in Trinity, and had a had a pretty wild time for uh, for six years in college. The advantage of going to med med school is it's six years rather than four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You must be quite ac academic. It's not easy to get into medicine these days, and I presume it wasn't back then either. Yeah, you know, it's it's. Um, I, I was I was fortunate that that school came easy to me. So um, for me, it, you know, it, it obviously it was a challenge for sure. But um, uh, I I pretty much knew I could do it. Uh, Sister Joseph's grinds were obviously had helped, um, uh, and uh, yeah, I managed to I managed to get in. So that was pleasing. Yeah. So how did how did you end up switching from the kind of academic clinical side into the business side that you're in now? Yeah, so as I, I, I did medicine. Um, this was in the um, uh, late 80s and early 90s. Um, I remember looking around at all the people in college at the time thinking, well, I, you know, at least I know I have a job. I'm not sure what all the rest of you are going to do, right? There's a, medicine gives you a job at the end, right? Um, and that's what I did. I, I did clinical medicine for eight years uh, post um, post uh, uh, um, finishing college, um, and special I, I did clinical medicine rather than surgery or others, um, and was attracted to neurology. Um, I liked figuring things out, and neurology is basically it's 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 solving puzzles. Um, so that I, I did that, um, uh, but ultimately I, I got to a, a stage in in my medical career, even where I was turning thirty. Um, I was pretty much at the end of my training. Um, I also had a bit of time to think because I did, I did research uh, over in, in, in the US, in the Mayo Clinic in the US. And I, was, I, I found myself staring down a microscope a lot, so that gives you plenty of time for thought. Um, and I sort of asked, you know, do I really want to do this for the rest of my days? Um, and surprised myself really in some ways in, to, to say, actually, no, I really don't. Um, so I, I wanted a bit more of a challenge. I had exposure to the commercial side of things <clears throat> through working with a pharmaceutical company doing clinical studies and was attracted to that and, and started to ask questions, uh, you know, um, is it even in the art of the possible to, to um, switch career at, at, at this point? Um, and a lot of people thought I was crazy. Um, some people thought I was having a midlife crisis early, um, including my, my good wife. Um, but uh, ultimately I learned about MBAs and an MBA was a, was a passport for people like me who, who wanted to, to um, maybe try something else. Um, I was very lucky because the, the, um, uh, my, my uh, supervisors, in, in, I was at this point on, on a training scheme in neurology. I was 18 months off completion to become a consultant neurologist. And you know, my supervisors, A, thought I was crazy, B, thought I was having you know, a, a, a moment. Um, and, they, and they kept the, the role open for me, uh, which was very good of them. Um, so I went off and I did my MBA and, and, um, uh, and then moved into VC. And I, I remember getting a, a call 
from my mentor about two years later saying, so, you know, are you over it yet? Are you coming, are you coming back? And I said, no, no, in fact, I'm happy with what I've done. So I moved away. Okay. And then venture capital, why, why venture capital rather than just getting stuck into a single business? Because that's all I was useful for, frankly, Stephen Rice. I had, I had a, medical, a medical career, including research. So I understood science and I had a freshly minted MBA, right? But that was, that was it. I had zero commercial experience, right? So the only thing that I thought I would be anyway useful at was looking at um, life science companies and trying to assess whether you know, the, the science made sense and, and, and build my commercial experience over time. So um, I was fortunate again. Um, I, I got a, a role working for a group called Advantages Venture Capital in, in, um, in Switzerland. So um, uh, we moved from, uh, from Fontainebleau, which is uh, just out of Paris, where, where INSEAD is, uh, to Geneva. Um, and uh, yeah, started my, my career working for, working for those guys. And I guess like having an eye for uh, a sound investment is a great asset to have. And if you tell me you've had 100, 100% success over all your investments over the years, uh, my next question is invalid. So I'm hoping that you'll say that you didn't get it right all the time, but you're able to pick up uh, lessons learned from, from even the failures. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, in, in, um, particularly in life science investing, um, the, the attrition rate in, in, in what, what we do now and what, what I was assessing then in terms of drug development is extraordinarily high, right? So um, it, 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 in many ways, you're kind of crazy to think about bringing a drug. They call it from bench to bedside, which is all the way through a development. And just to put some numbers on that, um, uh, only one in 100 drugs that goes into clinical development ultimately will, will, will make it. Um, and the average cost uh, across the industry is, is said to be now two billion. Um, that's not to say that it costs two billion to develop a drug. It does not. Um, it often costs hundreds of millions, though. Um, but because of the really high attrition rate, the um, the the average to get drugs to market is is is, is of that order. Um, yes, I mean not just because of biology, though. Um, I, you know, I made my own. Uh, Fair, fair, fair chunk of mistakes too. The thing I've probably learned the most, um, which has been most helpful in my career overall, um, and most helpful certainly in my job now, is is it's all about the people. It's it's just it's all about the people. I I would much rather, as an investor, put a mediocre technology in the hands of really good people than a phenomenal te- technology in the hands of of poor people. And that's that's something I learned particularly. Yeah, and I suppose you've really got to crack if you can find uh, the, the right people, but also with the right technology, which probably brings me on to, uh, to, to Amrit. So how did Amrit come about? How did you first get involved? Yeah, so <clears throat> I, I, I guess a little bit of relevance um, uh, would be what I did after Inventure. So, so I went to the UK, worked for Aberdeen Asset Managers, um, started off working in, a, in an early stage fund, and then latterly... Um, joined their private equity group. So I found myself doing um, leverage buyouts in the UK mid-market. And, and that, that experience was, was, was phenomenal. Uh, and I learned a huge amount from it, um, including how to structure transactions. So that was, that was really, really good. Um, I worked for Stellis then back in Ireland for, for a period um, as a medical director. 
and, and then before setting up Amherst, worked for a group called Sofanova Ventures, who, who, who had set up an Irish office, and, and I opened and led their, their um, uh, efforts in, in Ireland. That it was important because it gave me good visibility on all of the, the drug development assets across, across Europe. And what I realized is that actually the, the opportunity set in Europe is, is as good as it is in the US, but, but there's 10x less capital in, in biotech in Europe than there is in the US. So having worked for a US group and, and, and got to know a lot of the people in, across the other side of the pond, I felt there was an opportunity to leverage that, right? So to leverage the, the opportunity that existed in Europe and the experience of being able to access the capital markets in, in the US, um, and, and therefore decided to, to, to set up the company. Um, the other thing I, I, I learned is a, a little bit to your earlier point is, um, you know, if you, to set up a company, a, a lot of people uh, set up companies with, with, with a drug discovery idea and, and fair play to them because it's incredibly, incredibly hard, right, to do that. Um, what I wanted to do was, was to get a company that became commercial as fast as possible. Um, so that was the idea. So the idea was, was to be acquisitive and to buy assets from other people, leveraging off the investment that they'd put into it, do deals well, right, to, to, um, to be able to structure transactions that, that created value um, and become commercial. That was the idea, really. Um, and then a, a passion was to focus on, on, on rare diseases. And the reason for that was you know, it's motivating. It's, it's, it's what gets us up in the morning. Um, these are diseases uh, that, that most people have never heard of, right? Um, and often they don't have, have an approved treatment. So for me, developing a, the next generation of blood pressure tablet is, yeah, it's interesting, but it's not particularly motivating given that there's a plethora of other options. But to, to develop the first ever drug for EB or epidermolysis bullosa, which is one of our, our development areas, um, in a truly horrific disease, to be able to help these kids, that's ter- enormously motivating. So that's that was one one side of things. The other side of things is because I said I wanted to be a commercial company. Um, obviously, that's challenging as a startup, right? You want you want to commercialize drugs around the world. How do you go about doing that? Well, in rare diseases, the the model is small small numbers of patients being treated by small numbers of physicians often in small numbers of centers, that means we can have a commensurately small commercial footprint and address the global market opportunity. And we've proved that by doing so, you know, we, we are, we're now a global commercial business. And that, that's what an orphan disease is, is it? But there's, there's currently no effective cure or treatment. Yeah, they're called orphan disease. An orphan disease is, is, is a disease that affects small numbers of people effectively. Um, so, and often it's tiny. Does, we actually operate often in the ultra-orphan space. So, for example, um, a number of our conditions that we treat, the prevalence of those conditions is one per million of the population. If you think about that, that means there's 350 patients affected in the whole of the United States and 450 affected in the whole of Europe with these conditions. They, you know, they're ultra-orphan or ultra-rare. Ultra and um, they're called orphan because historically they were orphans. These conditions were orphans because no, nobody wanted to touch them um, because of the, 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 the really no numbers of patients. So therefore, you know, it, it, was, it was completely um, 
wrong that if you had a common disease, you had like, I'll go back to blood pressure, you have any number of, of options. Whereas if you have a rare disease, you often had no option at all. Um, and that was recognized by both regulatory authorities and by uh, governments across, across the world. And there are now in place incentives for companies like us to develop drugs for these rare or orphan diseases. And they include fast tracking of FDA approvals and that kind of stuff. Is that that's correct? Yeah. So uh, they're both there's both regulatory incentives and also um, there are um, financial incentives. So you, you've you've mentioned fast track. It's a, it's a really good one. We have fast track designation for our product Filsavez, which has just completed a positive phase three study in EB that disease I just mentioned, um, the worst disease you've never heard of. Uh, which we're really, really pleased at. That fast track designation allows us to, um, to get a priority review, right, which accelerates the process of, 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 of potential approval. Um, and also um, it, 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 allows, um, it allows us to, well, we've, applied, we've also got a thing called pediatric rare disease designation. I don't want to get too technical, but it, what that means is that we, we are entitled, if we're successful in the US, to get a thing called a priority review voucher and priority review vouchers or PRVs are enormously valuable because they can be sold, right? Um, and the, the going rate for those is $100 million, and we're entitled to, to, to a, a PRV if we're successful with our product, which we, we hope we will be next year. Okay, okay. And I know look, Amrit has a number of very successful commercial products already, but just coming back to Phil Savez and his treatment for, for EB, we're all very aware of... Uh, Deborah, Deborah Ireland and Deborah UK is a charity that, that looks after uh, victims or patients of, of EB. So what, what does Phil Savez do for, for those individuals? <clears throat> so Phil Savez is, is designed, so let me explain what the disease is, right? So it's a, it's, it's a defect in the genes, so it's genetic, that code for the proteins in, in your skin that holds your skin together. Um, so a, an example is, it is different subtypes, but an example is, is, is collagen seven. Collagen seven is a protein in your skin that um, creates a thing called an anchoring fibril. Uh, again, not getting too technical, but the anchoring fibrils in your skin look like and act like the Velcro of your skin. So they hold your skin layers together. If you lack the Velcro in your skin, minor trauma such as pulling on socks will rip your skin off, right? And that's what these kids are born with. Um, so they, 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 often the times there's no indication before birth, but as they're born, they're born with these, these horrific wounds all over their bodies. Um, it's incredibly traumatic for, for uh, parents. And I've described that the, um, that the current standard of care, the best that Western medicine has for these kids is medieval. Um, why? Because what we do is we wrap them in bandages and we send them home. That's it. And that's it for life. These, these kids spend their entire lives wrapped in, in, in a body bandage and there's no treatment, right? So um, the, you've mentioned Deborah. Um, Deborah do enormously good work uh, working with these families helping with the burden of disease, helping try to give the, the carers, actually often it's, it's the carers um, who, who really struggle because uh, as, as one mother uh, told us when, when she spoke to us, um, it, it, the, the really traumatic part is that when you're changing, for example, the child's nappy and the skin rips off, 
the child thinks that the parent is actually deliberately hurting them. So it's truly horrific. Um, so we work very closely with, with, with Deborah, both in Ireland, UK, but actually Deborah International, Deborah America. Um, uh, and um, we're, um, we're you know, that's why we're so pleased that, that our product does actually help. What it's designed to do to answer that question is to, is to try and accelerate the process of wound healing. We're not right now able to prevent the wounds from breaking down. But once they do break down, if you think about it, if your skin's ripped off, you want the, that wound healed as quickly as you can. So that's what our product is, is designed to do. It's designed to, to heal it up, as, uh, uh, accelerate that process and heal it up as fast as possible. We do have a gene therapy in, in development. It's uh, in preclinical development right now. But that product, if successful, will alter the genetic makeup of the skin and give back that protein that makes the, the Velcro of your skin. And hopefully then the skin will make its own Velcro again. I've watched, uh, I've watched some of the videos um, on, you know, on EV and to be quite honest, it is really upsetting. So, I mean, I, I'm so happy that a company such as Amrit is, um, is addressing that, that unmet need. So uh, obviously the best of, of luck in your future research and, and product development in, in that regard. Um, the Nasdaq Bell, you know, the, you must have been so, so proud of that. Your first day of trading, you got, you got to ring the, the virtual closing bell. How did that make you feel? Uh, you know, uh, enormously proud. Um, uh, not just personally, but for, for, the, for the entire team. Um, so because, because of this, uh, this strange world we live in, I, I've avoided putting the euro in the box by saying the C word. Um, uh, we, um, we, we, uh, we, we couldn't go and, and do it in person. Right. So it was, it was done, done virtually. Um, and it's, it's the oddest thing you're ever, ever going to do because what we had to do was, was basically, um, spend a, a, a minute clapping and, and looking cheerful right into a video, which you can do quite easily for a few seconds, but I challenge you to do it for a minute and see how hard it is. Um, <laughs> it, was, yeah, it just feels completely wrong. So, um, but the, the final product was, was, was outstanding because we had an animation on the, on the NASDAQ building on Times Square. Uh, of the Amrit logo, and then as the closing bell um, happened, we were all there in 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 sixty feet uh, uh, height. Uh, our entire team clapping and 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 looking very pleased with ourselves. So um, it was a great day, and it's something that we've we've been able now to to use internally, etc. For for as as you know, for motivation, etc. For everybody, we're very pleased by it. Yeah, yeah, and for, I guess for full transparency, I'm the audit partner for Amrit, so I know a number of your team very well and I very rarely come across um, people who are as hardworking and loyal uh, at the same time but you you seem to have a team that that does that so is, is that something that's really important to you the team around you it's it's the most important thing right so it's it's the it's uh, you know it's, it's the thing I've learned most I alluded to it earlier um, it's really all about people right so um, to be successful as a business comes down to individuals, right? So do people go the extra mile? You know, will they, will they, they work, work the long hours required? Um, are they the right fit, right? So um, will they act ethically right? in, our, in our business? That's everything. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, the thing I've tried to do, to do most is, is build, build a, you know, a, a great team around 
me and also Rory, Rory Nealon is my CFO. He was my co-founder of Amherst. So, you know, I, I want to, to also mention that Rory was, was the co-founder of the business. And we, we very much built a team around us. In, in, in that regard, we actually took a view that, um, that for our senior leaders, because, you know, trying to find uh, people to join effectively a startup um, um, with, skill, with a, with a skill set, um, was challenging. We 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 took the view that we wouldn't demand that everybody had to live in Ireland, and that was that was a, a choice at the time. So our senior leadership team is spread out, and that creates its own challenges, and you need to deal with that. Um, but actually, it was probably the best decision we made because we were able to then get really really good, uh, the, the the best people that that we um, uh, we we wanted into the business. Yeah, sure. Um... And you can see my lights have gone out here. So uh, we're an energy saving business here as well. But we'll plow on ahead for time we don't even notice that. Uh, what, what would those guys say about your leadership traits? If you weren't in the room, what, how would they describe your leadership? Uh, Actually, I know exactly what they'd, what, what they'd say because they've told me. Um, I, I recently undertook a, a 360 feedback okay. exercise um, with my team, which I then shared um, with the team, warts and all. Um, so, so I'm fully aware of, of, of the good, good and bad. And at Amherst, we, we, you know, culture is everything, I, I believe. And one of the things I want to create is, is an open culture where feedback is not just expected, but sought. Um, so what they say about me is that um, I have a, a challenging leadership style, um, both good and bad. So I, I, um, I challenge people to make better better choices. So when people come with, with, with a proposal, I, I will challenge them. Is, is that the right thing to do? Have we thought about all the angles, etc.? cetera? Um, sometimes that can, that can be intimidating actually. Um, so uh, that's my work on. Um, but I'm, I also have a, a very open and collaborative style. So, um, you know, I, I, I really seek, I seek feedback. We, we did that exercise. Um, but also I want ideas from, from everybody because you know, part of building a great team is is to leverage off their collective experience. There's really no point in having people with with, with lots and lots of great experience if you're not you know using that and utilizing that. So that that's the feedback. Okay, and uh, when we were setting up this call, you mentioned that today is actually a wellness day for all of farmers employees, and I gather in a nutshell, emails are banned, and everyone is is required to take the the day off without distraction. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, everyone but the CEO would appear because <laughs> my day is suddenly very busy. But um, the uh, uh, yeah, so so we did this before actually. Um, this is the second time this year we we did, we did it at Easter time. It's it's really um, again not putting the coin in the box uh, around. It, it's it's a it's a it's it's it was came from the the situation we found ourselves in in that. You know, everybody is now remote, um, and we've we've um, done some work on that and got feedback across the team. And you know, whilst that's in some ways good, um, but what re- people really you know find is that uh, you go back to back Zoom um, pretty much you know all day long, and it can be quite stressful, right? So, plus dealing with the stress of 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 the current situation is is is, is really challenging for people. With childcare, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we wanted to, to, to you know, try to create 
uh, some time where we said to people, okay, we, we appreciate that you are putting in the extra hours, that you're working really hard for us. Um, and so let's, let's all take a collective uh, step back um, where we can just, you know, just take some time off um, and be with your family and, and, and de-stress uh, a, a little bit. And it, it, I have to say it's gone down incredibly well, both, both the last time and this time. Um, and we have banned emails. So um, I've, I've, I've uh, warned people that they'll be in trouble if they start sending, sending emails today. There is a few sneaky ones going around, but uh, mostly they're coming to me. So that's, I'll, I'll forgive that. It's a, fa- a fabulous idea. It's a lesson for us all to take on board, I think. Um, in terms of your own wellness, I know you're big into sport. We've, we've been through a few big rugby matches o- over the years. Um, how, how do you switch off? How do you balance um, working extremely hard with having some time to spend with the folks at home? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a huge challenge. Um, and um, I, I've certainly been on the wrong side of that, Stephen. Um, uh, when we were you know, at, at some of those games together, I, I was a, a good bit heavier than I am now. <laughs> um, and, uh, um, uh, but so, so what I've, what I've actually started doing is, is, is carving out time to, uh, to focus on, on, on wellness, um, and, and being fitter. So I now carve out time in my diary, um, and I'm, and I make no apologies for it that, that, you know, I won't uh, anymore do, do, uh, back-to-backs all day, every day, which is what I was doing before. And actually what we've just done is, is, is we've now rolled that out to our senior leaders. So um, we've, we've created a, a wellness program and I'm encouraging people to carve time out of, 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 of their days uh, twice or three times a week. It's, it's only an hour, right? Um, but people can then focus on, on, on uh, nutrition or, or, or whatever it is, um, or exercise, which is what, what I'm doing. Um, you know, when you reach a certain age, um, you, the only team sport you do is is, is watching it on the telly. Um, so um, I, I I do play tennis um, and inevitably play golf. So um, that's what I do. So I think you're dead right. I think physical health and mental well-being are so close hand in hand. The same way as you know, there's no such thing anymore as work life and home life. I think it's just life. So you do you do have to kind of carve out um, some quality time or some time for yourself uh, just to be able to switch off and um, getting getting close to the end if you had three tips in terms of leadership do's and don'ts or lessons that you've learned over the years could you share those uh sure i mean you know there's there's all kinds of things but i, I guess for me i've already alluded to it um the, the, the one thing that that's you you should you should do in my belief and we've done well is build a great team so um you know uh, realizing that you're not brilliant at everything and i'm, I'm certainly not uh, there's certain things i'm particularly rubbish at um building people a complementary t- a, a team with complementary skill set is enormously important so I, I would probably say that is my number one do my second do is is completely related to that, which is something that as, as an entrepreneur, I struggle with, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with, which is to empower that team, right? Because, you know, you do like to make decisions, right? You wouldn't do it, what, 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 set up a business unless you, you did like that. Um, and it's hard to let the, let the baby go a wee bit, right? So yeah. empowering the team to make decisions, because after all, you've hired them for their skill sets. So, so you need to, to allow them the, the autonomy to go off and, and make their own decisions. And then the third thing for me 
that is 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 a big do is to focus on people and culture uh, within the business. Um, I've seen this time and time and time again, uh, both my investment career and also in this in this because we acquire companies, we we acquire different cultures and and building a a cohesive culture and and building in your values into that, um, which then creates the the right behaviors, is is enormously important because. If you don't do that, um, it, it can become quite toxic quite quickly, um, and that's a road to disaster. So I would say focusing on, on people and culture is, is, is my third do. Okay, great. And then optimism for the future, how, how big or great do you think Amrit can be? Well, so we've, we've gone from a, a startup with two people in, in August 2015 to now a global commercial business with just about 200 people around the world. Um, and we um, uh, have given revenue guidance this year that we would expect our two commercial assets to, to do between 170 to 175 million in revenue this year. Um, and we have a, a product that, that uh, as we've spoken about, has just got positive data. We hope that that will be approved late next year and we'll go and launch that. Um, we expect the, that product um, to do hundreds of millions, frankly, of, of revenue at, at, at peak. Um, and we continue on our strategy to acquire, develop and commercialize products. We're um, cur- currently listed on both AIM in London and on NASDAQ more recently in the US. Market cap is circa 400 million. Um, our, our, our hope and expectation is to, is to more than double that in the, in the next little while. Um, and hopefully, as we continue to to deliver on what we say we're going to do, and that's critical, it's 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 uh, delivering on on your your promises. Uh, we can accomplish that. I've and I've no doubt with uh, your, your track record and that of your team that um, you're you're not overstating that. Full full confidence in you. So you've had a wonderful career to date. Uh, it was really really great to hear your insights and your views on leadership. So. I'd, like to thank you dearly for uh, for joining us today. Also, like to uh, thank all of our listeners. That was the second in our virtual Leaders Lounge series. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it, and we hope to see you tuning in again soon. Thanks, everyone. Thanks again, Joe. Bye bye. Thanks, Stephen.